Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Steve. Hey. Shock Jock Steve Price. I don't like Shock Jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. John Lethling possibly has the best job in the world. Based in Margaret River, John is the national food critic for the Australian newspaper. Now, COVID might have put a dent in his 2020 plans, but in normal times, John is the fearless food critic that guides us through the traps of eating out in our great country. Welcome to On The Record. It's really good to hear your voice again, Steve, and uh, it's great to be uh, in conversation with you. Oh, yes, I've missed <laughs> Although you. Although you'll, you'll do all the talking. I've you'll do all the talking. <laughs> I've missed chatting to you a lot. But uh, let's start there, That the COVID pandemic. I mean, yeah. it's clearly cut a sway through the restaurant uh, industry. How bad are you hearing that it might be? Um, well, clearly for Victoria, it's, it's, it's catastrophic and it's really, it really all comes down to how, how long, uh, how, how long the, la- the largesse of the federal government will, can last, uh, in terms of its support schemes. Um, I, I imagine that some, a lot of people will reopen, uh, and do what they can in the, in the, in the prosperous months, you know, or weeks, whatever it is that lead up to, uh, to, uh, Christmas, you know, to that festive season, that time that we all, that we know in Melbourne is, is such a great time to be there. You know, spring going into early summer and the city's alive, the restaurants and the cafes and the bars are all just pumping. There's Christmas parties for corporates. There's just so much going on and it's, it's the time of the year. Where you know every restaurateur and every chef and every cafe owner makes hay, but when the hay baler stops pumping uh, at uh, you know on uh, Christmas Eve, I suspect a lot of people will uh, close their doors and not reopen, as you know deferred rent spikes, as new superannuation rules start to loom, uh, or new or like new, new new rates, um, as debt. Uh, uh, that have been uh, that have been furloughed get pulled up, um, and as as um, disposable income in the community, you know, really starts to bite as as you know various support schemes, you know, come come off stream, and uh, people start to do it hard. I I'm not personally. I, I feel 2021 is going to be a very tough year for a lot of Australians and. That of course, you know, will have a, a, a direct uh, trickle down to the people who, uh, who who rely on disposable income, the, the cafe and restaurant proprietors. And so, you know, I, I don't. I, I wish I could tell you I felt optimistic about all this, but I, I, I truly don't. See, no, it's tough, and I guess we need to talk about Australia and have Victoria as sort of an outlier because things are obviously tougher mm. in Victoria than they are just about everywhere else. I wanted to run a, yeah. a bizarre theory past you. I mean, normally I would uh, have living in Sydney or in Melbourne eaten out a minimum probably of three times a week, maybe even four. Uh, since lockdown, yeah. uh, it, there was a, a slight window of opportunity in Victoria and I went out a couple of times. I just wonder how many people who would be regular diners out uh, been forced to change their habits and might say to themselves, well, you know what, I might just continue to cook my own food at home and get the occasional takeaway and not go out and dine at a restaurant. I don't think that's a bizarre thesis at all, Steve. I actually reckon it's on the money. I I, I think – 
I think a lot of us will probably, okay, some people will have realised that, like you and I, you know, putting together a, a putting together a sort of a, a tasty meal with some good ingredients is actually not all that hard, uh, and it can be reasonably pleasurable and it is quite cost effective. So there'll be that group of people. Then there'll be another group of people who have gotten used to the idea of ordering in, um, and that'll be you know it could be quite high end stuff. But they'll say. We a we don't want to be surrounded by people, you know, coughing and sneezing and touching us. Yes. Um, yeah, um, why don't we don't want to? We don't want to risk drink driving. We don't want to be getting into into Ubers or taxis that may or may not have had proper hy- hygiene regimen. Um, so they might just be saying, you know, they might still be spending money, but it might just be spending it and and, and you know having dining at home. Um, and I, you know, I know a couple of people who are doing businesses where they're, you know, doing sort of kind of restaurant standard food that is sort of 80% there. You finish it at home, um, and they're doing really well. And, you know, we might, it might become instead of going out to dinner and dropping a hundred bucks a head, um, or more, um, as the case <laughs> may be, it, it might, it might be that you start looking at, okay, we're going to have a dinner party. We'll spend, 70 bucks a head on food um, for our, us and our guests. Um, we'll provide some wine. Our guests will provide us some wine. We're having a pretty high-end experience with really good quality booze. We're just going to do a little bit of cleaning up ourselves at the end, and you know that'll, that'll become the new value equation that people, that people look at. So I think that you've got a really good point there. There's going to be some, some habit changing that is going to take the restaurant industry um, some time to overcome and reconvince people again that going out is, you know, is, is worth, worth the money. Because like you, I used to dine out quite frequently and I can count on uh, one and a half hands the times I've eaten in restaurants in the past five months. Um, uh, you know, and then you multiply. What a that change that is for you! I mean, that's just amazing. But you, you know, multiply you out, you throw into that taxis. What are my main expenses? Probably similar to yours. Yeah. Taxis, hotels, airplanes. Yes. Um, you know, now I I live much lower on the hog than Steve Price typically. Not sure but, about that. But you know, I mean, I seriously, I mean, I my 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 my. Usual, my usual expenses to do my job uh, would come to around about five grand a month. So let's say that's twenty-five grand right there that hasn't been spent uh, on those sort of full service providers, and you multiply that, you know, around business people, media personalities, sports industries, etc., etc., etc. The money that's not going into all these things is just, you know, isn't any wonder Virgin. You know, when when tits up, um, exactly. Uh, you know, hotels, you, you make a great uh, point. You make a great point about uh, restaurants pivoting and providing uh, at home food. I asked my one of my daughters the other night what she had for dinner. Yeah, she said we had takeaway. Wait for it, takeaway mm. from Attica. Goodness gracious me! <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, what were you nice. celebrating? She said, oh, no, we just had a hard day. We thought we might do it. And I said, what, what turned up? She said, well, you know that famous dish, John, 
the potato in dirt. Well, they actually did yeah. that as takeaway. Oh, gracious me. <laughs> Which is amazing, well, isn't look, it? Yeah. But look, this is going to become um, this is going to become an important an important aspect of you know, it's gonna be one of the one of the arrows in the restaurant industry's quivers from now on. You know, take away or provide food at home or or home catered or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, this is going to become something that all restaurants, uh, you know, have to kind of have a, have a provision for, you know, and some will do it better than others. But, you know, I was talking to a really well-known Sydney chef on the telephone last week, uh, Ross Lustead, who used to have a restaurant in, in Sydney in Bridge Street called The Bridge Room, which mm, in all seriousness is probably one of, one of my three favourite restaurants in the country. But he closed it down in April 2019 for a variety of reasons, including he wanted to start getting ready for a thing he is doing at the new Crown Sydney. Um, and he's opening a restaurant in December called Woodcut. And it's sort of his fantasy restaurant of, bringing all, together all his memories of great food from around the world of, you know, 20 years living abroad. Anyway, he made the point that, of course, in, in, in the U.S. and Los Angeles and New York, for, for super high-end restaurants to do to do take-home food or delivered food, you know, for disc- discreet clients, it's just a, it's just a natural thing. It's, it's just what, what's, what's always been not only done yes. but expected. And he feels that uh, you know we are we in a transition phase in Australia where this will become the case. And look, you know, it's not a new thing. I, I can remember when I first moved to Melbourne as a as a as a youngster, as a cadet journo, and I shared a flat with a guy who uh, was a student, but he had a part time job at at Maxine's. You remember the old Maxine's in oh, yeah. in um, in South Yarra? Yes, indeed. Um, in, anyway. Um, um, and, and Maxine was, 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 I don't know that it was a particularly good restaurant, but it was an expensive restaurant and it was well, well loved by the, the old school, the old, the old guard of South Yarra and Surak. And, uh, Mac, Maxine, you know, did home, home delivered Maxine and it was a sort of a, it was a prestige product. Um, so it's not a new concept, but it's going to be, it's going to be part of most restaurants offerings going forward. I, I believe, um, and uh, you know, that's just you know, it won't, it won't, it won't be kids on bicycles arriving coming in through the front door with <laughs> no. a back, backpack well, to collect pizza. You know what It'll you be and I, organized you know, that. you know what you and I think about that sort of delivery system. You'll be horrified yeah. because I read the other day your um, efforts in making your wife's fish pie. Uh, there's a yeah. place near where I live now called Bistro Elba who's gone into the takeaway business to try and keep afloat. They do an absolutely yeah. sensational fish pie where the pastry's not yet cooked. So you pick it up from oh, yes. uh, from the venue. It's got the, the fillings all done, but go. the pastry's yep. not cooked. And you pop it in the yep. oven for about, a, I don't know, 45 minutes or something. Absolutely sensational. Just gorgeous. Beautiful. And not that expensive. And that's a, 25 bucks and or that's something. A, that's a perfect example of um, of of what I think is going to fill the is going to fill that void uh, between cooking for yourself or going out for a reasonably reasonably priced meal. And I think some people are also I haven't formed a, an opinion one way or the other, but 
I think some people are, are of the view that it's the restaurants that don't offer anything particularly special or, or amazing that are going to really suffer because you could have that pirate restaurant, Vitro Elba, for, you know, for X dollars and buy a bottle of wine that's marked up 150%. Or you, as you say, you can buy a beautiful fish pie and all you have to do is put a bit of egg glaze on top and, and throw it in the, uh, throw it in the oven for 45 minutes and serve it. Um, uh, so and pull a, become a very important. Yeah. And pull a sixty dollar bottle out of the out of the wine cupboard that would cost you, as you said, one hundred and twenty or one hundred and thirty if you had it at the restaurant. Let's have a bit of a walk yeah. down uh, walk down history lane. Uh, can mm. we go back? Where did your interest in food come from? I think it certainly wasn't from home. Um, <laughs> my <laughs> my mum knew good tucker, but I wouldn't have called her a good cook. But both of my parents came from a sort of rural background, and particularly my mum had grown up, um, you know, the, the daughter of a of a prosperous Tasmanian farmer. So they always had beef and lamb, and and of course Tasmania shellfish, crustacea. So great cetera, ingredients. Yeah. So look, you know, when I as a as a young growing up, my dad and mum. Their idea of indulgence, you know, wasn't, you know, spending a day in the kitchen cooking. I can frequently remember my father would buy a hessian sack of scallops or a hessian sack of oysters or somebody would drop in three live crayfish and my mum would go into the butcher's shop which still had, uh, which still had, you know, um, sawdust on the floor in the country town that we grew up in and she'd ask uh, Mr Webster, the butcher, who was also a farmer, you know, it's actually the concepts come full circle. Um, you know, could, 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 could he, uh, hang some beef for her? And a month later, she'd go in and pick up some, some beef for a roast, for a roast joint of beef, mm. but it was aged, aged beef, probably from, uh, Hereford, uh, uh growing up in Gippsland pastures. So, but I, I would touch, Steve, I guess probably I, I, as you may or may not know, I did five years at the age when I finished school and then I thought, hello, I am a um, square peg in a round hole. Uh, it's time to buy an airline ticket. So I went over to Europe for two years and bummed around. I, I saved up some money. My mum and dad gave me a few bucks. I worked a bit and spent two years travelling around continental, continental Europe and Scandinavia and, and uh, Britain and just generally being a, you know, being a good for nothing. But um, I think that's kind of where I realised that, you know, um, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> you know, there was, there was food, there was more to eat. Uh, but look, you know, equally, and you would appreciate this as much as anybody, I, you know, when I went to work at the age of a cadet, at the age of 16, um, I was thrown into this exotic uh, room full of exotic people, and we're talking about the age in the uh, the age in the late seventies. It was sort of fascinating. Some real people. characters a complete, there. Completely different organisation to what it is now. You know, it was still um, it was still a family owned business, and it was making truckloads of money. And all sorts of people were were in there. And <clears throat> I was a country kid, and suddenly I'm meeting my first. 
my first gay men and women. I'm meeting my first Jewish men and women. I'm meeting people from all walks of life. And they all were kind of urbane, kind of interesting people. And um, I think, you know, and I was in Melbourne. You know, I was in Melbourne. It was a, it was an interesting, it was an interesting place full of lots of Greek and Italian and Chinese. Uh, you know, second generations. We were still to have the Vietnamese, uh, you know, impact on the on the town. Uh, I don't know. I think I guess I was just sort of. It was um, I was just ready to ready to be to take on new uh, new horizons. And then you met uh, travelling else. Then you met Claude Farrell and said, "I'd like his job, please." <laughs> I was certainly reading Claude Farrell <laughs> de- de- decades before I ever wrote a restaurant review. I I, uh, I did like the idea of going to restaurants. I may not have been able to afford it much, but I, I certainly uh, I certainly did like the idea of going to restaurants. And um, my mum, when she used to come to town, used to take me out to some quite interesting places, uh, you know, because I didn't have any money. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I, I think I think that sort of is a is a broad, long, bullshitty answer to your to your question, mate. Uh, it was um, it struck me as something. As something um, that, that improved, I think improved tra- life, improved the soul. Travel does it to you. I can still picture and almost taste the first time I ever had in France a bowl of steamed mussels uh, in a in a in a white wine sauce. I, I yep. could I could take you back if it was still there to the place. It was in an antique market on the outskirts of Paris. And I yes. just thought it was the best thing I'd ever eaten in my life. I mean, I couldn't afford to do it every night, but boy, those memories do set you on a track to either uh, want to examine and experiment with food or not. Oh, that's totally true. And you know, ironically, that almost the first time I ate Vietnamese food was in Paris in 1982. Uh, ditto Moroccan food in Paris in 1982, and that was because as a as a as a backpacker, you know, this was, you know, this was accessible. It was food. cheap. Yeah, it was cheap. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, that's colonisation in reverse, isn't it? You know, there I was enjoying these these cuisines on the other side of the world uh, as a result of French colonisation of, of Africa and, and, and Southeast Asia. So, yeah, you know, travel and food, I don't know that you can necessarily pull them Pull them apart. I mean, they are they are lock, you know lockstep with each other for me, and you discover an enormous amount about a, a country by getting out into its eateries and markets and food halls and and you know eating the food and asking questions and learning about where the food came well, from. Like you, it. like you, I think the first place I go to in a in a place I've not been before is the local market because I think that's oh, where you work out the soul of the town. Oh, absolutely, and you know, um, you know, and on a kind of a more somber note, I do, I do have some fears about what you know the post-COVID era will bring in terms of these type of marvelous experiences. I mean, as you know, we've talked many times, many times on the radio about the little visits I've had to, to Turkey, and oh. I mean, you know, to go to the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. Is you know that 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 will that'll bring that should bring a smile to anybody, but you know will will how will places like that operate in future when you're you're jammed in there with 
5,000 Turks and another 1,000 tourists. And I don't know. It's going to be – the world The world is going to be changed in ways I can't quite yet, you know, I can't quite yet comprehend. Let's hope it doesn't change too much. You did edit the Age Good Food Guide. Uh, was that when, mm. when the guide <laughs> used to still ring – up celebrities and business leaders and had their recommendations <laughs> at the bottom of the review because I was asked to do that once. I can't remember for the life of me where I said I'd eaten, but it didn't even get me a good table particularly. <laughs> do you remember that era? No, look, either either that era had passed or we killed it off when we did it. Um, but, no, I do remember it. Certainly I remember when the Age Good Food Guide was first published by Anne O'Donovan. 40 years ago this year, 40 years ago. Yeah, there you go. Anna Donovan, a a marvellous woman um, who who actually ended up selling the Age Good Food Guide back to the age. Good on you, Anne. I reckon that's brilliant. But Claude and Rita and their various uh, cronies used to have that section where they'd ring up the same group of Superannuated QCs (laughs) and media celebrities. Lindsay Fox, Darren Inch. (laughs) I do remember that. No, we we didn't persist with that in the. Uh, I must have contributed to at least fifteen years of age good food guides, but I, as you say, I did edit it for about three years, and um, um, no, nah, we didn't ring people up. <laughs> it's <laughs> Sorry, amazing. I should have rung you up. It's amazing to think yeah. it's been around for forty years. So I went back and had a look online yesterday. Isn't Google a wonderful thing? Yes. Let me take you yeah. back to nineteen eighty. Uh, restaurant of the year in 1980 was Fanny's, uh, and the dish yes. that they highlighted in that particular edition was a seafood sausage with a cream and green peppercorn sauce. <laughs> there you go. There you go. What I wonder who that? the chef was. No 1980. Idea. Well, look, you know, 1980, I was 20 years old, and I never went to Fanny's, certainly as a customer. I think I might have gone to a, a Function there once, but I never wandered in there and plumped down my own buck. I was more Pellegrini's than Fanny's, oh. but um, but no, I do remember Fanny's uh, there in uh, in Lonsdale Street. If I'm same edition of they, same edition of that yeah. uh, that age mm-hmm. good food guide, Rogalski's Hot Pot Shop, mm-hmm. which was selling mm-hmm. lamb uh, cooked in pastry. Uh, Glow Glows was yeah. open. Two Faces and Mietas were still going. There you go. There you go. But I did work out something. This is a great piece of trivia for you. You needed yeah. to have an F in your name from back then to survive to today. And that means, and the reason I say that, flower drum, yeah. flower drum, yes. Florentino, yes. Francois. Yes. We're all still there, well, there going go. then and are still going today. Francois must have kicked over 30 years. Yes. Incredible. Um, well, 1980, yeah. Amazing. That is, that, that is, that is incredible. Um, but I've got fond memories of some of those restaurants. Rogalski's, certainly. Um, Two Faces. I don't think I've ever went there as a customer, not in the Herman, Sch- Herman Schneider days. Um, but I, I once did an exercise, Steve, and this, this is almost a, a parable of how of how the media industry has changed. But once when I worked at Epicure, um, when I was the deputy editor of the old Age Epicure, 
And Stephanie Wood was the editor. Um, uh, so we're going to talk about now about 1998, I think. 98, I think, 99. I spent about four weeks putting together a kind of a, uh, uh, an infographic, they would call it on television, about, and the, pre, the, 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 the concept was that five Melbourne restaurants had been, had, had basically been responsible for an absurd, um, flourishing of, a, of Australian food talent. So it's and like the were, football coaches that come out of Alistair Clarkson and Hawthorne. It's the same correct. sort of thing. It was ex- exactly. It took forever to do. <laughs> um, you know, nobody would pay a journo to do that anymore, but I laboured away on this drawing dots and trying to work out how to represent it graphically, and they brought in a graphic designer to help do it, and, and people still talk about it today because the idea was that Stephanie's two faces Fanny's, Mietta's, and one other, and I'll, and I'll come to this, <laughs> had, had, had produced this disproportionate um, uh, volume of talent. Mm. And it was basically joining, it was a, jo- a dot joining exercise. It was great fun. Um, but those restaurants, you know, as mentioned in that 1980 Good Food Guide, um, were responsible for so many fascinating Fascinating and talented people. A, a bit who, like uh, uh, the people who trained under, you know, Gordon Ramsay or came out of River Cafe, that sort of uh, bloodline. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I've always enjoyed that kind of thing. I mean, I mean, I did a story some years back about all the Australians who had worked at a restaurant in London called The Square, uh, which was part-owned and, and run by a, a chef called um, Phil Howard. And he's not your, you know, your screaming Jay Hawkins of TV chefs. He was a, but he, there are so many Australian chefs who worked at this restaurant um, over the years and who came back and did fascinating things. And again, the River Cafe, I did another similar kind of story. I enjoy these, um, these joining of dots and, and making, you know, recognizing the, uh, you know, the, um, the, the predecessors and recognizing the lineage. Uh, because I think, you know, I think broadly speaking, you know, whether we're talking about an Alistair Clarkson and the, the coaches who came out of his school or, or whether we're talking about restaurateurs who encouraged chefs who then went forth and did their own thing, I think this is important This is important stuff. And, um, yeah, it's history. It's our um, history. It's great, yeah, to, great to track yeah. it. I mean, I tell you what, my, yeah. credit, my credit card was bleeding after a visit to the River Cafe a few years ago. Let's talk about <laughs> food. Let's talk about food critics because – you are the most recognisable food critic in Australia currently. Uh, you come uh, you know, at the end of a long line of, of very famous food critics. Um, I, if we go back to people like Leo Schofield uh, or Stephen Downs or someone like an A.A. Yeah. A. Gill from, from the UK, um, are you conscious that you're a, a member of that esteemed group of people? Look, I, I would I wouldn't put it that way, uh, Steve. But um, I can. Well, look, Gil 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 was in a league of his own. Um, you know, that's like you know comparing sort of Rudyard Kipling with with <laughs> with, 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 with with Shakespeare. He's no um, longer with us, A.A. Gill. Is that right? No, no, no. He passed away about uh, four four years ago. Yeah. Um, and he was 
he was um, he was something else. Um, and he did a lot of other things besides write restaurant reviews. He just wrote some of the most memorable restaurant reviews ever published. But um, look, you know, he's the look, Jeremy you know, Clarkson of food, really, wasn't he? <laughs> Leo, yeah, look, he was amazing. I mean, he was he was amazing. I was scratching my head trying to work out just where these thoughts. I know. Well, you and yeah, I both love you and I both love cars. So when you read Jeremy Clarkson, you've got to get three quarters of the way through the Australian magazine car review every weekend before Jeremy even mentions the car he's talking about. No, and he even had the he even had the temerity to re, to review a car he hadn't driven the other day. I <laughs> he simply he simply reversed it so that someone else could move their car, and then wrote a review on the basis of that. Look, yeah, I mean Jeremy Clarkson is a as a different kind of entertainer. But a nonetheless brilliant, brilliant entertainer, and you know across all media. So, golly, I mean, I would love to be, I would love to have, I would love to have a half, you know, a quarter of Jeremy Clarkson's talent. But look, I mean, certainly people like Leo Schofield and Claude Farrell and Stephen Downs. Um, I remember Eric Page uh, in Melbourne. Um, uh, John Newton in Sydney. These people are all paved the way to make it possible for for newspapers to have regular and, and magazines to do regular restaurant reviewing in in Australia. And I think Melbourne was the first city that really embraced it uh, on a weekly basis. And I think you know some some people would probably make a pretty good argument that that was um, an important catalyst. For the, the maturing and, and 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 refinement and growth of, of Melbourne's of Melbourne's restaurant scene in the seventies and eighties, and I reckon they probably have a very good point. I think it is. I think there is a very important nexus between uh, independent and um, independent and knowledgeable food media and uh, the, re- the restaurant industry, but. You know, it's a changed relationship because print is no longer what it what it once was. I can see a book in this from you for sure. I mean, Leo. It's nice to be part of that group, though. Well, you are part of it. You're at the front now. Leo Schofield taught everyone who was uh, either a food reviewer or had ambitions to be one that you had to be careful. He got famously sued, didn't he? Leo got very famously sued. And, uh, you know, for listeners who, uh, are unfamiliar with this and focus on far more important and, you know, fundamental things in life, um, Leo went off to a restaurant called the Blue Angel, uh, in somewhere in Sydney. I'm trying to remember now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's in, it's in, uh, I think it's in Paddington. Um, I'm just trying to remember the date. Uh, probably in the early 80s anyway. And Leo went off to the Blue Angel for a meal and wrote um, uh, wrote a restaurant review um, that was withering, <laughs> but unfortunately um, uh, it had a couple of points that were indefensible from a uh, <clears throat> from a, um, uh, a defamation perspective. Mm. Um, and uh, his his um his employer or his contract employer because he wasn't a staff member at the Herald, um uh, he, he just wrote restaurant reviews for the Herald at that stage, went down for a fairly for what they, at what it was at that stage 
a fairly substantial sum of money. And um, I don't know what uh, I don't know what internal training happens now or what co- happens in universities, but certainly last time I did a refresher course in defamation, which was about ten years ago, the uh, the case of um, Blue Angel versus uh, the Sydney Morning Herald and Leo Schofield is one of the one of the case studies uh, you do because um, and one of the very few good ideas I've had in my uh, in my life was some years back to go to the event editor of the uh, Weekend Australia magazine and say, you know what, it's 25 years since Leo uh, since Leo Schofield reviewed and got into so much trouble with the Blue Angel and nobody's ever dared review it since. Why don't we do a review? And we we did we did do a review and it was it was quite fun to reread quite recently because the way it was phrased was very cautious. Well, needless to say, needless to say, it was cautious. But it was a reflection on how restaurants have changed. But it was also an interesting reflection, Steve, on how we do our jobs differently now. I mean, in Leo's day, it would have been some some, some scribbled notes, no doubt, in on the back of a napkin or something. Leo, on the back of a napkin and a bo- and a Beaujolais or two. You know, uh, I I might have might I may have been the first in Australia to start taking photographs when digital cameras first came on the scene. Uh, because it seemed to me that if you wanted to say something and you needed to prove it, the photograph was a bloody good way to be able to do it. So when I went back to the uh, Blue Angel, you know, some six years ago to write a review and celebrate that 25 years since Leo had uh, gotten into, you know, more deep water, more, more hot water than a lobster, I was able to take photographs of dirty uh, of dirty linen and I was able to take photographs of scruffy waiters and things like that. So that there was no there was no arming and arring about the, uh, the 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 comments I made. They were they were factually they were factually defensible. Well, you famously uh, reviewed a restaurant called the Hill of Grace, which was at <laughs> was at the Adelaide Oval. Now, a couple of things about that: <laughs> a, a very odd place to have a restaurant is in a grandstand at a at a cricket ground, and you did did mm. in that review make make some very uh, interesting points that. The best part about the meal was the red wine you were drinking and the, watching the cricketers practice out on the ground. You got yourself in a bit of strife from the Hill of Grace, didn't you? It was a slog. It was a shocking restaurant and it was a shocking meal. <laughs> and gloop, I, gloop. The word gloop I, comes to mind. And I just got to the end of it and thought, well, if was, you know, if the score is out of five and, you know, five is how much I recommended and zero is how little I recommended. I just came to the conclusion that the only score I could give it was zero because I couldn't think of anybody in anywhere in the world to whom I could recommend this experience. And, um, and as your more urbane listeners will know, Steve, the Hill of Grace is the flagship wine of the Henschke, the Henschke Hell of a uh, brand. family Wine, yes, and uh, I question to this day why on earth the Heskies put their name on that business. And I must tell you, a couple about eighteen months ago, I had the fairly uncomfortable experience of finding myself on an aeroplane sitting next to Stephen Henschke, and it was the first time we had locked eyes, let alone spoken since the zero out of five score of his of the restaurant. That made the point uh, that. Hensky putting their name on that was, you know, a little bit like 
you know, Bentley uh, putting their name on a on 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 a, on a billy car. You know, um, anyway, it was an uncomfortable, uh, but thank God this was only Adelaide to Melbourne. Uh, you know, the flight didn't last that long. Well, legal action <laughs> can uh, can get reviewers in a lot of trouble. The other one I looked up the other day was Math- <laughs> Matthew Evans' review of a restaurant called Coco Roco, which ended yes. up in the High Court. Look, it's a long, that was a really, really drawn out saga. It was a long saga. Uh, it ended up costing uh, the, a company, the, the then Fairfax company, publisher of the Sydney Morning Herald, where the review was published. It ended up costing that company a truckload in legal fees and in uh, um, damages awarded against them uh, to the complainant. Uh, they claimed that they were defamed and the claim was upheld and it went from one court to another to another. It was a really protracted situation. And what it, what it came down to in the end was that the restaurant was able to successfully, uh, successfully present itself as, as in fact two restaurants, Coco Roco upstairs, Coco Roco downstairs, a little bit like I don't know a Melbourneian who remembers the old Stoke after thinking of Stokey downstairs, Stokey yes. upstairs. Yep. Uh, and I'm sure there are a million different examples. You know, Bar Bistro downstairs, Smarter Dining upstairs, Florentina, and Florentina. Exactly. Look, there are a million examples, but unfortunately, the published review didn't simply use the name Coco Roco. It didn't differentiate between the two businesses, um, even though they were operated by the same company. And um, uh, because the uh, because the published material was about a specific uh, specific part of the business, a specific tier, um, they successfully argued that they you know that they defamed the whole business and it was inaccurate and sloppy and. Um, you know, some would call it a technicality, but it was an expensive technicality for Fairfax. And um, look, it didn't hurt Matthew Evans' reputation. He'd he'd uh, he'd thrown in the towel as a restaurant reviewer by that stage and gone to Tasmania to be a farmer. And uh, and um, um, but he probably had trouble getting a gig as a restaurant reviewer again because <laughs> restaurant reviewers who cost publishers fuckloads of money um, are sort of you know. Uh, a poison, um, and I can, I'm really pleased to be able to say that in 23 years, I've never, I've never been sued. So, you know, you write carefully, and if if you if if it's a little bit iffy, it goes through a lawyer. Yeah, and, I reckon you know, your you evidence, I reckon your evidence based theory is a good one. We're talking to John Lethleen from the Australian for On the Record. Television and food has exploded in recent years, largely because of MasterChef and My Kitchen Rules. Can I take you back to 2015 and a television program that I cannot remember watching called Restaurant Revolution, of which you you were a part? I was a very small part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like the ratings. Yeah, no, no, I was even smaller part than the ratings. The ratings ratings were... Uh, abominable. I read the concept um, of this show yesterday, and it is so complicated. I couldn't work out work out how it worked. 
convenient how it is. We newspaper journalists are paid absolutely bugger all. Yes. And someone comes along someone comes along and says, Look, you know, here's a bit of a gig, you know, it'll take a bit of your time, you'll have some fun, we'll Yeah, like me like me going you. on I'm a celebrity, get me out of here in the jungle for six weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you probably made some money out of it. Oh, I did. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> look, you know, I had my, my first ever foray into television was the second series of My Restaurant Rules. The first series of My Restaurant Rules had a quote-unquote mystery critic uh, who was Matt Preston. Uh, I, believe the de- I believe the guy's doing quite well in uh, television. <laughs> uh, the second series, they had me involved. It was a great gig. I... Um, I, I had the hardest working week of my life working for them and trying to keep my other stakeholders at bay, but I got paid quite well to do it and it was fantastic. So when I got a call to say, oh, do you want to do Restaurant Revolution from the same producer, I thought, oh, beauty, you know. Why not? <laughs> this will pay a few terms of school fees or something. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the money was about a quarter. The work was about five times as much. And uh, the show, the show bombed. Um, and uh, look, I guess it was, from that point on, it was about one, it was once bitten, twice bitten, you know, twice shy. Um, it's uh, the commercial stations like to, you know, like to pigeonhole you as as something you're probably not. And I'm not a bloke in a blazer with a, uh, you know, with a silk pocket square. Um, you know, I'm kind of more of a t-shirt and jeans. Sort of bloke, and uh, you know, I probably am best and, and best behind a, a typewriter, you know. And I'm, I miss, I don't like you. I don't miss the hotels or the travel or the touching dirty remote controls and hotels and aeroplanes and taxis. I don't miss any of that stuff. But I do miss doing the one thing I'm okay at doing, which is sitting down and writing restaurant reviews. I, I really enjoy the going out to the meal and writing the review. I just don't like the other stuff, but I haven't done the other stuff now for five months, but I'm really missing, you know, the whole exercise of going to a restaurant and um, making observations, making notes, taking photos, thinking about it and, and trying to put together something readable that will at the same time be, um, you know, be a useful consumer tool. I'm, I'm, I'm missing that terribly. What's I don't know process, how I right into that. What's your process of doing that though? I mean, do you, uh, do you book under a, an assumed name? Do you, Go in disguise? Do you, uh, you know, secretly take notes under the table? How do you? How does the review actually get done? Well, again, I mean that's something that has changed considerably in the digital age. I mean, you know, and I, as I said before, I like a gadget. I mean, I, 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 I was, I'm sure I was the first person, and Stephen Downs has actually mentioned this once that I was the first person who ever started, you know, taking photographs instead of doodling you know, on a notepad. I, I, long before smartphones, I bought a, a little personal digital assistant with a, with a keyboard. I used to sit there and take notes on that. Um, but, yeah, you book under an assumed name. I'm an incredibly unassuming sort of person uh, in the flesh, as you unfortunately know. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm so easily overlooked. It's a joke. I'm the most ordinary person in the world. So, you know, I wander into restaurants. Um, I don't draw attention to myself. Um, and I think that's a pretty important point. Some people do like to draw attention to themselves in the media and they're not doing, they're not doing their readers any favour. And I just sit there and 
you know, I might be taking notes. I might be, I might be texting someone. Who knows what I'm doing? Um, but I'm making, you know, I make notes. And uh, so, what's your mindset? Because you know, John, you're walking into what, in many instances, I mean, we're not talking about the big corporate-owned restaurant chains, but mm. you know, family-run businesses, often a small business. How do you feel when you you think, oh, this place is not very good? I mean, do you ever do you ever walk away and go, look, I can't do it, do it to them. I can't ruin this person's life. Very rarely, I have done it, but you know, in twenty three years, I've done this a fair bit. Uh, walked into restaurants and walked out knowing that I have promised someone or I have an implied deadline uh, that has to be filled. And but you know, occasionally I have erred on the side of caution. Um, uh, but I can't answer that question without sounding pious, Steve, because I just always have to keep at the front of my mind that this is, you know, who my audience is, and my audience is not journos. Yes. It's not people in the restaurant industry or baristas or barmen or sommeliers or winemakers or anybody connected with it. It's, it's someone in the suburbs of, of any city in Australia or any country town in Australia who earns an average wage and gets their tax taken out by, the, by their employers or they're left with X and then they've got to pay everything else with what's left and they go to a restaurant and it might have cost them a taxi and it might have cost them a babysitter and then it's got to cost them after-tax dollars. And I, I, that, I, I, I always start from that, from that premise that how is this going to be read by a punter, a consumer? Um, uh, the bloke I meet down at the pub, the bloke I see, I chat to on the beach while I'm walking the dog, the bloke I bump into in the supermarket. You know, this is a pet subject of mine, but too much of the Australian media has got its head up its own ass, particularly the food and wine media. They only circulate amongst themselves. They only write for themselves and their chefs uh, and restaurant industry mates. Uh, and they have completely inverted the proposition um and um it's bullshit one of the things i've loved about your reviewing in in recent years and obviously we haven't had any for five months so can you get your act back together and start doing it again um you've found a couple of little country pubs which are doing good food i mean that must be an uplifting moment when you you're you know in the middle of nowhere. There's one you famously went to out the back of Goulburn in New South Wales, and you raved about it. I tried to get in for the next three months after that and couldn't get in there because you'd filled it up. But that must be very satisfying when you find a little operator in regional Australia doing great things. Well, going back to your last question, your previous question about what's your mindset? Your mindset is that you are you are looking for pleasure. You are looking for greatness, you're looking for, you know, you're looking for quality, you're looking, um, you know, your mindset is not, I've heard this, I heard this, these guys are pretentious uh, and got tickets on themselves and I'm going to take them down. That's not your mindset. It's your job to do so if they deserve it, but it's your job to, to it's your job to reveal the truth and to, to shine a light on it and, and it's your job to, you know, to discover uh to discover talent, if you possibly can. So when you find people doing great, great food with wonderful, warm hospitality and doing it at a, at a price that is more than reasonable, you know, it's, there is just, 
there's just nothing better. Um, there's just nothing better. And, you know, every, I mean, everybody wants, every art critic probably wants to say that they discovered a particular sculptor and, you know, ditto, you know, ditto theatre, cinema, uh, uh, all the creative arts, literature, everybody, every, every restaurant critic wants to be able to say, I discovered so-and-so. Um, and you know what? I don't mind saying it. It would be wonderful to have, in, after, when, when I hang up, my, hang up my, my laptop, to be able to say, oh, well, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, I was one of the earlier people to recognise that this person really has some talent and now look at them now. Um, it's up for others, up to others to say whether I've ever done that, but it's certainly a great feeling. And to be able to, to, be able to jump up and down and say to your readers, listen, you know, if you've only got, 200 bucks to spend in a restaurant this month, spend it here. That's a really satisfying thing to be able to put your hand on your heart and say it. Um, and um, as you know, Steve, like you, I, I, I try to put my bullshit detector on and, and look for honesty and, 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 and uh, great, great ingredients and great produce and warmth and hospitality over, over trickiness and, and uh, you know, smoke and mirrors. And uh, when you find people doing that and, you know that the piece of meat on the plate has probably has probably cost them seven dollars, and then they've had to, you know, do this and do that, da 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 da, and they've still managed to put it out in front of you with a you know a warm, hospitable waiter, and it's they've charged you thirty five dollars for a reasonable markup on a bottle of wine. You think, you know, they're not having a lens; they're doing they're working awfully hard to make our lives better. Let's congratulate them for that. So, I mean, I still get a real kick out of going to restaurants and discovering great food and, you know, and, and, and having a fantastic time. I, I don't think that'll ever change. I mean, um, I don't, I think that's just, I think that's just part of my DNA is just how much pleasure I get out of sitting in a restaurant, you know, talking, talking rubbish and, and, and eating great, delicious food and having a drink and, and just being looked after. I mean, who wouldn't love that? <laughs> what a great way to finish. And uh, we love reading your food critiques, John. They are uh, honest and they're interesting and they can be cutting. But uh, I think in general, when you read John Lethleen in The Australian, as I do every Saturday morning with my habit coming from the back of the magazine forward, it's a great pleasure. We've missed the restaurant reviewing. We know it'll come back, but I've enjoyed your cooking exploits as well. Final question, what would you cook yourself for your last meal? Ah, that's easy, mate. Uh, easy? I'd do, I'd do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would do the most the, the most perfect spaghetti carbonara that I could cook. I would get the best ingredients and I would make the best spaghetti carbonara, knowing that at this point the cholesterol really <laughs> isn't an issue. What a great answer. John Lethleen, thanks <laughs> for your think- help. Yes. And and thank you so much for your support. John Leslie, the latest in our On The Record series. If you enjoyed listening about food with John and his food adventures, listen to other On The Record interviews with everyone from San Newman and Kerri-Ann Kennelly to Peter Hellier.